You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Hope everyone's doing well out there. Thanks for joining me for another episode. In the last episode, I mentioned kind of towards the end that I wanted to branch out a little bit and touch on some subjects that weren't necessarily amphibian-focused, but kind of in the vein of some of the conservation efforts and some of the species-specific husbandry issues and whatnot that are kind of unique to some other genera, we'll say. And to kind of cut to the chase, in this episode, I wanted to address the Abronia genus, which I had sort of found out about relatively recently. And I noticed that there were, at least to me, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure everyone has their own ideas, but to me, there seemed to be some similarities with dart frogs in terms of not necessarily husbandry per se, but uh, the fact that many of the species occupy some relatively small locations, they are considered to be a little bit less forgiving when it comes to husbandry mistakes. There's several species within the genus, and there's still some possible issues with taxonomy. The species vary so much in terms of their coloration and whatnot, and they're all stunning and beautiful. And I thought that there were some, some, some parallels between the dart frog hobby and the Abronia genus in terms of... I guess you could say, um, I don't know. It, I'm kind of at a loss to describe it. It almost seems like one of those situations where you sort of know it if you see it. And t- to be honest, just before we even begin this episode, I-, I know absolutely nothing about the genus. I only know what I've seen from a couple of articles and uh, quite a few pe- quite a few pictures. I know that they don't have a common name. Well, some of them do, but the majority of them don't have common names, which is also pretty nice. I'm noticing that as the herp hobby in general moves forward, a lot of people are referring to animals by their scientific names instead of common names. And common names are great. I still use them quite a bit. And even like locale names, people use those for different dart frog locales and whatnot. But now that we're communicating more on a global level, meaning you can have a conversation with someone in the United States, you can have a conversation with someone in, in Europe, in Japan, in Australia, in South Africa, essentially wherever, using the common names always puts everyone on the same page. So it's nice that people are getting into that. And that's another thing that I've noticed in the Abronia, I hate to call it a community, but um, within the Abronia community, there seems to be a lot of reference to the scientific names rather than developing a bunch of, you know, hokey common names, which are kind of rife throughout the exotics hobby. But tonight I had Nick Gordon from the um, Abronia Alliance come in and we had a great conversation. I learned a lot and, uh, I think you'll all kind of appreciate where I was going in this episode. If you don't like it, I understand it's not quite 100% frog-related. In fact, it's not even 1% frog-related, I guess you could say. But like I said, I noticed that there were some similarities, not necessarily the way everyone thinks, but I think that the effort in terms of preserving the species while being able to maintain them in captivity, that really is what struck a chord with me. So... In any event, moving forward, I hope you guys like this episode. It's not necessarily a reflection of where I'm looking to go with the show as a whole, but I thought it would be nice to sample another topic a little bit and um, enjoy it. So I hope you guys enjoy. And here's my interview with Nick Gordon. Again, he was gracious enough to come on the show kind of last minute. And um, here we go. Hope you guys enjoy the interview. Okay, everyone. So tonight, as I just said, I have Nick Gordon from the Abronia Alliance. Nick, how you doing? Pretty good. How about yourself? Mm, hanging in there, hanging in there. Live, living yeah. the dream. Everybody says that, living the dream. I like it that, is. though. It is. Yeah. Um, so 
tell us tell us about yourself. I mean, you are you you're did you start the Abroni Alliance? Yeah, so uh, myself and uh, one of my uh, good friends who unfortunately passed away uh, this past year, uh, Forrest Fanning, uh, kind of started the Abroni Alliance about mm, maybe a year or so ago, um, at least the concept, but it's really just started kicking off. So um, I think my official title is a co-founder. So, Gotcha. Now, just to back up a little bit, now tell us tell us your story because you've got you've got quite a long and quite an interesting story here. How did your interest in herbs begin, and what ultimately led you to, I guess, having abronia become your, I don't want to say fascination, but becoming like your your priority genus? Yeah, so it's been kind of a fun um, uh, pathway for me. Um, I ever since I was a little kid, um, I always knew I wanted to be a zookeeper. I was the kid that, from like an age of, I think. The latest uh, I could date it back with my parents' help was when I was about four or five. I started telling, you know, family and whatnot, my kindergarten teacher, that like I wanted to be a zookeeper. Didn't want to be a fireman, didn't want to be an astronaut or anything. Like it was always a zookeeper. The funny part is, I actually always wanted to be a big cat keeper. And through kind of the uh, evolution of me growing into the person that I am today, um, I got kind of away from big cats um, and more into reptiles. But my fascination started when I was pretty young. Um, my dad was kind of big into, not big into reptiles, but he had had snakes as a kid as well. And he liked different lizards and turtles and whatnot. So as a kid, I had actually kind of a few of the rarer species, which uh, would be hard to come by now. But I remember one of my first uh reptile pets was actually a eastern collared lizard which is pretty uh uncommon these days to have as pets unless you're kind of out in their native range but being in michigan um where i was born collared lizards were not a normal pet but i was just fascinated by that and i had some turtles and i kind of uh got away from reptiles for a while um and i actually started volunteering at a zoo about an hour away from my uh, hometown, um, my parents were extremely um, helpful in getting me down and uh, helping me get through this team-based uh, volunteer program. And I kind of just fell in love with the zoo that I was at. And through kind of my evolution at the zoo, I really just found myself spending all my time in the reptile area, just whether I was volunteering in there, trying to educate the public about, you know, different biofacts or whatnot, or just sitting there staring at the exhibits, just thinking, man, I cannot wait till one day when I get to work with these species. It was uh, a pretty cool progression. And then when I turned 18, I graduated from high school and started my professional um, pathway to getting a degree in environmental science. Um, during that time, I was kind of working at uh, the zoo, and now I'm employed there full time. I'm a lead herpetology keeper. So, and that's kind of when everything started to shift, not only from just overall herpetology, but it really started to become what species and what groups of animals can I really help? Um, to make a difference in. And that's where Abronia kind of fell into my lap. And 
I mean, fascination, I think is an understatement, but I've really turned it into a passion, um, even past just general herpetology. Um, Brony are definitely my thing. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned collared lizards because when I was younger, you know, a, a thousand years ago, collared lizards were actually pretty common. Um, a lot of the big box stores carry them because I'm gonna, assuming since they were, I mean, they're U.S. I'm, God, I'm so terrible with lizards, but they are U.S. native species, right? They come yeah, from the American yeah. Southwest. Okay. I, I totally had a senior moment there. No, you <laughs> <laughs> I'm losing all credibility. But they were, uh, a lot of the big box stores at the time always had collared lizards and they were really popular. I mean, this was before, um, you know, we had expos and whatnot and, and people weren't, ca- I don't even know if people do captive breed them, but they were, they were really common. And I guess it was because that you didn't have to import them from out of, from out of the country. They were just, you know, a, a local. So I, I saw them quite a bit. I was actually kind of surprised when you said that you hadn't seen that many locally. Yeah. So, and I think I might've been, cause I was pretty young when I had those, I was probably maybe second, third grade. Um, so my dad did help do a lot of the actual husbandry of the animal, but they were my pet. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's funny. Cause like now you really don't see them much, um, at these trade shows and stuff, but I mean, it's not surprising that they would have been somewhat common because they are a kind of flashy lizard. They don't get huge, um, they're probably pretty easy to set up in a standard terrarium or whatever. Um, so yeah. And like you said, easy to import from, you know, States away, probably not a bad reason that they, um, were so prevalent, uh, in the herb trade at that time. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's an interesting species because you're right. They kind of just, uh, kind of just like slip through the cracks. It's interesting how you'll see a certain species that will come into the hobby and then, just sort of disappear and for whatever reason it just doesn't it just doesn't take off i mean just to give you another you know another idea i mean i remember when i was younger bearded dragons were the holy grail of the reptile hobby i mean i remember when i was i was probably in like my early teens and the first bearded dragons and the first uh, frilled dragons were coming into the hobby and i had only seen them in picture in books before and to see them live and in person was at the time was amazing and now they're pretty yeah. much at least bearded dragons are pretty much everywhere but yeah um just to get isn't, <laughs> yeah isn't that just such a weird phenomenon like when you see these like species in books and magazines and stuff and then you actually like see one alive right in front of you and it's just i mean it's so awe-inspiring which is one of the things that i just i love about the herp community because it just drives this level of fascination and the wow factor and it's so easy to just stay fascinated by this whole realm that is herpetology i agree i think that there's a lot of oh what's what's the best way to describe it it's, it's kind of like being a kid in a candy store to use a really bad analogy but, oh no absolutely. you know there's there's so many things out there that are just an absolute pleasure to behold and then you think to yourself, how did I miss something like this my whole life? How did I fail to appreciate that? Because even, I'm even just mentioning, I don't want to get too off topic on the collared lizards, but just to mention something like a collared lizard, when I was younger, I didn't really pay them much mind because they were so common. They were always in shipments. They were being sold. I didn't really know anything about their care other than what the, you know, because I did, I did work for a big box store going back in like maybe 95 or so. 
And again, there really was, there was no information in terms of captive husbandry. And you basically knew whatever the store manager told you, which was generally just like garbage. So yeah. I never purported to have any real good understanding of them. And that's, you know, as I, it's funny because the older I got, the less confident I became in my abilities to, um, say that I knew a lot about a certain species or a certain grouping of animals because I realized I didn't, you know, and I find that, you know, the best way to really get to know a certain species is to get to know someone who works with it almost exclusively, someone who has a good background in it. Because one of the things that I realized was that just because you keep one species doesn't necessarily mean that you're capable of keeping every other species. So to put it bluntly, I mean, you you mentioned big cats a little while ago. Okay. Yeah. Well, domestic dogs and big cats are both mammals. Having a domestic dog does not mean that you know how to take care of a large cat. Absolutely. You understand what I mean? So yeah. going back in time, you know, conventional wisdom was, well, if I can take care of an iguana, I can take care of any reptile. And yeah. it, it's that was that was the rationale for a really long time. And then as the hobby grew and it developed, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, backed off from the hobby for a couple of years. But when it came back, I realized that the effort that people were making to get to know these different genera and these different species on a very, very personal and focused level was something that I had never seen before. So it's like getting out of that bad habit and kind of realizing that, you know, just because you drive a car doesn't mean that you know how to drive a motorcycle, even though they both have wheels and they both go somewhere. So... Yeah. And I, I think that is a really um, interesting concept because I think you're exactly right with there are so many different um, kind of genres and specific kind of communities adapted around certain species. I mean, it's like, I mean, this is an amphibian podcast, so we'll use frogs for the perfect example. I am what I would consider an expert in a species of Nectophrenoides um, uh, frogs. I spent collectively probably the past like eight years breeding thousands of them professionally, um, rearing them up, learning everything about them. But that doesn't mean I'm an expert in Adelopis or, uh, you know, a lot of the dendrobateids or pamilio or like any of this, but it's a frog. So it can't be that different. But then you start getting down into, okay, there really are so many differences between certain species of pedistibes or, you know, adelopis or bringing your like uh, glass frogs. I mean, there's just so many different um, groups out there that are completely different, but yet we lump them into kind of that same, like, oh, well, it's a frog. I know how to take care of frogs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just yeah. been, uh, there's a lot of old timers out there who kind of have that, they, they kind of hold on to that attitude. And it was just so pervasive at the time that if you knew how to take care of one species, you automatically knew how to take care of another just because it was exotic. And yeah. it's, it's, as it's nice to see that that attitude is changing, especially among serious keepers that, there's a lot of people that are passing on really, really good knowledge and really good information that someone else can pick up on. You know, it's, it's just, you know, I'm not in the hobby for a thousand years, but in the 30 years that I've been keeping different exotics, specifically reptiles and amphibians. And now I also, I'm a big invert keeper as well, but the, the generation that is kind of heralding the next 
decade or whatever you want to call it, you guys are doing a much better job of it now than we did, but you also have a lot more resources now that we didn't have. So it's nice to see the hobby moving forward in a in a way that is much more species focused and less focused on, hey, I keep exotics. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, so. that is that is something that I've been um, fortunate enough to even just see a glimpse of. I mean, I remember going back to reptile trade shows when I was 13, 14. I'm 28 now. So it's been, you know, not a lifetime, but it's been a significant amount of time. And I've even seen a lot of the change within kind of the way we think about how to set up husbandry for species. And instead of that impulse buy of, oh, well, I can take care of this and just chuck it in a tank and give it a basking light or, uh, you know, uh, UV light and call it a day. Now we are starting to see a lot more people actually taking that time to really research the species that they're planning on getting into and becoming almost these experts. I mean, I remember going to shows and hearing almost every single person like, what is that to a certain species and having no clue of the species and then walking away with it later because it was conveniently priced or they just thought it was cool. But now you're seeing, even especially these younger kids, they're coming in and half of these kids can list off the natural history, the scientific names, the husbandry parameters like for these species. And then they're asking these vendors and whatnot, all these very in-depth questions that just shows they're going to be well suited to do well with that species. And it's just really neat to start seeing that. And that's one of the big reasons that I kind of was out of the private sector for a while um, just because I was doing it so much professionally, um, I kind of got out of it and then I came back into it because I saw this, you know, community really growing in the right direction. And I just thought there's definitely uh, stuff that I can do to help contribute that to being continually progressive and growing in the right direction, at least I think. So I guess only time will tell. Now, have you noticed, I mean, one of the the themes that I kind of try to continue with the show as, as, as best as I can <laughs> um, is the understanding that there has to be a role between science and conservation and the hobby. Because the two of them, at least my, my take on it is they have to kind of coexist and work together because, I mean, like yourself, you grew up with captive reptiles. And you work professionally with reptiles and amphibians. So you've kind of seen both sides of the, of the story. I mean, do you think that the line between hobbyist and, you know, professional scientist keeper, do you think that those lines are starting to kind of go away and you think that the two communities are kind of coming closer? You know, I, I think in a lot of uh, ways they are starting to fade and I mean, honestly, like there should be no lines. Um, and I, I even sometimes break it down into kind of three different categories. You kind of have your private sector, your like professional, like zoologic sector, and then even your like academic sector. So you're talking kind of your researchers and even just um, people teaching, professors, people working on doctorates and studying these different species. And I think that between the three, there's no reason there should be kind of this, oh, well, 
that's how the professional sector does it or oh that's how the private sector does it or oh that's how the academic sector does it it's oftentimes a lot of a lot more than people think professional people helping out in the private sector and working in the private sector just as academics helping out with the private sector or private sector helping out academics to provide animals for different testing and stuff so we really do have to kind of just eliminate these um, lines of the different categories and just become one herp-minded community. Because ultimately, I think so many people are working for the same common goal. We love reptiles and amphibians. We want to see them thriving, whether that's in captivity, in the wild, or in both. There's no one that's going to contest that and say, oh, well, you know, I keep bearded dragons at home, but I want to see them go extinct in the wild. Nobody's saying that. Everybody wants the animals to thrive in the wild, just as there's no reason that the academics or professionals or whatever can't value the good that comes from privately keeping it. More probably kids come through fascinated at reptile expos and are going to be the next academics, professionals, lawmakers, um, contributors to any number of conservation or um, environmental protection agencies. Like these are the, the next generation. It doesn't matter if they're in private professional or academic sector. The kids of tomorrow are what matter if we want the HERP community to be preserved for later years. So I think that the lines are starting to fade, but I think there are still a lot of big personalities and a lot of big opinions that try to kind of keep their sector close to themselves. Um, and I think we just, we need to break that down more and more. Um, and that's why as a professional, also as a private keeper, um, I just, I don't see any reason why there needs to be this division. I agree. I, I think that what kind of led me down that thought process was what you mentioned before about uh, young kids at expos. And you're, you're going to have young people that are going to be doing the work. They're going to have access to resources and technology and whatnot that wasn't available when someone like myself, like when I was younger. I mean, even you, you're 28, but you know that there's some 10-year-old kid out there who could school us both because oh, they're, they're putting in the work. So my thought was always that the two the, the the two worlds can learn from each other. Meaning, okay, well, let's just say for argument's sake, you have a zoological institution or a scientific institution, and they want to know how to work with a certain species for whatever reason. Let's just let's just say um, we'll, we'll we'll just pick arbitrarily and just say that there's a species of dart frog, and someone wants to study the toxicology of the skin for some sort of medicinal purpose or it's pharmacological reasons, whatever. Well, they got to figure out how to keep it and they got to figure out how to get to reproduce and they got to figure out how to keep it healthy. Well, there might be some young dude out there or dudette, boy, girl, whomever, yeah. who might be keeping that species and having a tremendous amount of success with that. And they're not, they don't have a PhD. They don't have an MS. They don't have an M whatever. They just happen to be some young person who's really, really doing well, knows the husbandry and made a real concerted effort. Well, who's to say that the scientific community can't learn from that person despite that person not having all that criteria met, you know, in terms of formal education and whatnot? 
that's that's always been one of the things that I've been kind of adamant about is to say, look, well, you really can't discredit someone's experience and someone's advice if it's correct. Yeah. Well, and I think you also have to just give people a chance just because somebody doesn't have a PhD or a background in the zoological field or whatever does not mean they are any less valuable to the discussion than somebody with those criteria. And that's where I think we're really trying to get away from this. What's your resume, so to speak, say, versus what's your experience? You know, if a 10-year-old kid wants to come up and teach me how to breed uh, Uufaga granulifera, which I have no experience breeding or keeping, but yet I want to, I will be happy to sit there and listen, despite whatever their resume says, because that's what it's all about. It's about progressing the entire community as a whole, instead of letting our egos um, kind of bolster this, oh, well, I've been doing it for this long, or I've been doing it for that long. I think the the more you think you know, the less you actually know. And if you have shut down your mind to wanting to continue to learn and learn from both other people and other communities, you've lost the battle as a whole. So that's why I'm always even looking at different forums and Facebook groups and, you know, all these different things. And I utilize a lot of those methods and ideas in my professional zoological work. There's been multiple things that I can attribute our zoological success from the private sector. So we have to get away from this whole one side versus the other versus the other and just all work towards the same common goal. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And before we kind of get into some of the specifics of the, of the you know, of the Abronia genus, um, just, I mean, you know, off the top of your head on the personal level, what do you think about like bad information that's out there? Because unfortunately, one of the side effects of having things like YouTube and uh, I mean, I'm not on Facebook. I don't have a, a strong, I have like no internet presence whatsoever, but um <laughs> I mean, I'm just some bozo who makes a podcast in his closet, but no, um, not at all. um, What was I saying? Um, You know, you watch a lot of YouTube videos. And as I said earlier, I know absolutely nothing about the Abronia genus. I'd seen, um, I'd seen an individual, which I think was, um, is is it Graminea? The green? uh... Uh, I mean, there's so many different ways of saying it. I've always pronounced it Graminea, but it's Latin, so yeah. who really knows? And unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, there's no ancient Greek and no Latin speaker. Exactly. I mean, there are people who study it, so I shouldn't say that. But yeah. I know the pronunciation is always a bone of contention. And it's funny because people actually get pretty twisted over it. But in any event... That's, that's where I find it so funny because it's like, does it really matter at the end of the day if you pronounce it right or wrong? You still know what you're talking about. And I mean, the same thing could be uh, used for common names versus scientific names. So... It's ultimately just a, a waste of a well, discussion. One of the things I always found funny was when a certain scientific name, people will say, well, you're, it's, it's, it's Latin name is this. And I look at it and I go, well, no, it's actually ancient Greek. Yeah. And, then, and then you hear crickets and then it's like you were correcting me on the pronunciation of the wrong dead language. Yeah. And then so, they, yeah, and, and then, and then you have to laugh. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's, and I, that's where I think, you know, the, 
the herpetology community is a very serious one. Um, and it, it should be held on a serious level, but we also have to be able to laugh at ourselves and realize that we don't know it all. And we have to be willing to say, Hey, yeah, you're right. We can laugh at it and enjoy it. I mean, that's why we're mostly all in it because we get some level of enjoyment out of it. So. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that one of the other things that's interesting about the genus, at least in the hobby, is that most of them are referred to by their scientific names. I couldn't find very many in the way of common names. Yeah, so um, it's funny how Abronia have kind of taken this um, turn for really being notably um, kind of talked about in their uh, scientific nomenclature. Um, so the Abronia genus... Most people, if you say, oh, you know, uh, arboreal alligator lizards, they kind of look at you and you're like, uh, okay. But if you say abronia and they've heard it before or might be familiar, people key on, which is pretty funny. And there actually is, I want to say a couple species, it might be two or three, um, that actually don't even have uh, registered common names, um, which can make for some difficult uh, things when you're trying to match up, you know okay, this scientific name or common name, but even the common names sometimes are a bit weird, like uh, Abronia graminia. Um, one site lists them as the Mexican arboreal alligator lizard, and then IUCN red list lists them as the terrestrial arboreal alligator lizard, which is hilarious because it's so contradicting. I don't know how you can be terrestrial and arboreal at the same time, but <laughs> It gets people thrown off, and I'm just like, I don't know, just roll with it. You want to hear something else that I always I found that was really contradictory was um, the I uh, the ICUN. Well, it's not on the red list, but um, they have Homo sapiens listed as a species of least concern, which I thought was ironic, considering we're probably yeah. the worst species. We should be the most concerning species on the. I mean, obviously, because our population isn't in danger. The, yeah. way the, the way they the way they rate it, but I looked but at that and I'm like, really? Are a concern. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're a major, major concern. Well, I've got to assume that all the other species out there have their own lists, and we are like number one of most concerned. Yeah, so. yeah, we're on the list that starts with S and ends with T. Yeah, use your, <laughs> yeah, use your imagination. Um, but as far as the, the the scientific names go, it's 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 nice to see that. Um, like I said, it, it's the best way to not develop a bad habit is not to start with one in the first place. So I've noticed that a lot of people refer to the different species with their scientific name rather than common names. And I've also noticed that that's also pretty big in the invert hobby as well as in the dark frog hobby. Whereas, you know, certain other species of reptile and amphibian or different, you know, different genera, different, you know, groupings, etc. A lot of them just tend to go more common name heavy, whereas certain species like you know, the species in the Abronia genus, Dendrobates, Ophaga, you know, they all generally go by default to scientific name, at least among members of the community that I've interacted with anyway. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you think that that's a beneficial direction to, to go in? I would say it is. Um, you know, I mean, there's always the tricky part about common names because they're, especially if you go into different cultures, um, there's so many different names uh one of my favorite ones is like um the bothrop species so fertilance lance heads uh hundred pacers although hundred pacers kind of gets used loosely i think there's an a uh, kistradon species 
that also goes by that name, which is where it gets really tricky because you just have so many different common names that can be used for multiple species or multiple names for one species. So I think a lot of it um, stems from actually the species being brought into the community by scientific literature. So almost all the information that was utilized towards any bit of husbandry knowledge for Abronia mostly came from a lot of like Campbell, Frost, um, a bunch of different uh, researchers that spent time down in Mexico and Guatemala writing papers describing these species. So really, there wasn't much information out there except for these papers, and most did not list common names. It was only the scientific. And I think a lot of that can be also seen in a lot of the amphibians and inverts, because most of the time there's such diversity um, among species or subspecies or even just localities that if you are describing so many, you don't have time to come up with a bunch of different Latin names on or a bunch of different common names on top of trying to distinguish what's going to be the best, most fitting uh, scientific name for them. So now are there issues with taxonomy because I mean, I'm, I'm just, I have a little cheat sheet here. Um, I have either 29 species or I have 28. Now what's the situation with like with their taxonomy and the number of species that have been identified or recognized by science? Yeah. So there's, as far as my last knowledge, there is 29 species. However, um, I believe we actually just, I don't know if it's been widely accepted or just um, accepted by a few, a few peer-reviewed journals, but there is a new species as well. Um, I want to say it was the Morientia, um, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, it's pretty new to being described um, and accepted, but there is probably any number of what I would say even upwards to 30 to 32 species now. Some are just still in those kind of current revisions, but 29 species have been fully accepted into the Abronia complex. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of species when you think about it, especially considering that many of them occupy relatively small areas am i am i correct in that statement or yeah no you're absolutely right um there are quite a, a lot of species of that genus the unfortunate part is most um or i shouldn't say most but about probably 40 uh percent of them are known from less than 10 individuals um some being known from only one to two individuals um, that were described off of those. So a lot of the species on the actual um, list that make up the Abronia genus will probably not be seen in our lifetime and are probably functionally extinct at this point. Interesting. See, that yeah. was one of the, that was one of the parallels, you know, I mean, obviously this, this show is very, very frog heavy. Um, I mean, I'm, which I'm, I, I accept full responsibility for that. Um, no, it's great. But you needed a good amphibian podcast. Thank you. I try. I try. But what really drew me to Abronia was the similarities between the kind of the, 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 the fragmentation of small populations and, and unique species in these very small areas, the way that many dark frog species are kind of divided up into locales. 
So you might have a locale of, say, Ofaga that exists in a very, very small, or, or Adelopis that exists in a very, very small area. I mean, is that the same situation with with Abronia? Yeah, so there's um, kind of two parts to that. So one, you have quite a bit of species um, that just have small entire ranges. Um, you're talking maybe one uh, forest on a mountainside is the entire range of an entire species. And it could be larger than that, but oftentimes we're guesstimating at that range um, as is. And oftentimes it's quite a bit smaller. Um, talking with uh, a few different researchers down in Guatemala and Mexico, they've kind of noted that these abronia are not big into really migrating. Um, so fragmentation is a big problem and uh, range separation is a big problem. So you do have a couple species within the complex that do have a few different localities specific um, kind of phenotypic differences that have obviously been split for long enough where you are starting to see that variation. So one of the examples is uh, Abronia smithi. Um, there's, it's believed that there is some phenotypic variation based on a couple different uh, forests that they can range in. There's one that's bright green and then one that's actually black. However, we really don't know if that's actually a locality-based thing, or it could be a sexually dimorphic thing. It could just be a random genetic variation thing, too. And this is why there is so much more research needed on these species, because we don't even know if they could really be elevated to different species, and we could be lumping them into the same one. And that's happened a lot in previous literature, um, Abronia depi and Abronia martindale-campylli were thought to be the same thing for the longest time, and then were elevated to two different species, as they found Abronia martindale-campylli was only found in this one specific forest, and they had just thought it was part of the bigger range of Abronia depi. So you do start to see a lot of these similarities with especially the Central and South American um, herptofauna. Um, there's obviously a lot of issues with um, improper land use. Um, Costa Rica is fortunately doing a great job of utilizing ecotourism to bolster the value of its species instead of diminish it and then utilize it for palm oil, agriculture, I mean, any number of things that would clear cut these forests that so many different species utilize as their home range. And oftentimes they don't migrate well because the only other habitat that's specific for them is being clear cut as well. So you do see a lot of that crossover between I think dart frogs and abronia where you're seeing these small pockets popping up and we really have to do our best to try and preserve those pockets or they're gonna be gone forever. Oh, absolutely. Um... Just to everyone out there, normally the way I do these episodes is um, I normally write up kind of a, like a general line of, of questions and whatnot, and um, we, we're still on number one. Um, yeah, I was going to say I don't think we follow. Okay. I don't think I've followed it very well. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. I'll give. I'll give you. I'll give you a pass. Um, 
But just to just to kind of get back into one of the the subjects I wanted to address was was the genus itself. I mean, tell tell us about the genus for people who aren't familiar with it. Like, what's what's their natural history like? Yeah, so Bronia are currently only known to exist in three or have existed in three countries, which is Mexico and Guatemala, and then previously Honduras, which borders the southern side of Guatemala. There's one species that was known to kind of range down into the northern end of Honduras, but as far as we know, that species has since become extinct or at least is functionally extinct. So as far as Abronia go, we know them to be native to basically the south um, east side of Mexico, down into kind of the Chiapas area, which is kind of your uh, southern coastline, that, and then that move into Guatemala, which is pretty much throughout Guatemala from both the western and eastern uh, coasts of the country. So there is the um, 29 species plus or minus a couple, um, depending on who you ask. Um, they all are relatively what I would consider a moderate-sized lizard, um, small to moderate. Um, usually they're anywhere from as long as maybe six inches to, I would say, some of the biggest ones. I'm trying to do a quick conversion of millimeters to inches, um, and it's not working well. But I would say the biggest um, are thought to be Abronia fimbriata, and they're probably coming in at about maybe 14, 15 inches with their tail. So a relatively small species. Um, they're pretty specific in their kind of environment that they live in um, and the habitat. They're mostly known to live in moderate to higher elevation cloud forest. Um, so a kind of unique um, species in the way that while they're living on these mountain ranges, they're basically living in um, what somebody else has called uh, an island group of kind of mountains because they can't really go to the lowland areas um, because they're actually pretty sensitive to high heat fluctuation. And if they're exposed to too hot of temperatures, they tend to start going downhill pretty quickly. Yeah, the, on my little cheat sheet here, I have, um, I guess it would be Mesic or Mesic? Mesic Montane Habitat. That was the that was the term. Yeah. Which is moderate or well-balanced supply of moisture. Yeah. So they really do thrive on um, that kind of perfect cloud, picturesque cloud forest habitat. So when you think of kind of mountainous Central America um, with the clouds rolling in and you see bromeliads and tillandsias and orchids for, for miles and miles and moss and uh, epiphytic plants, that is picturesque Abronia habitat. Now, the other the other parallel that I drew between some, especially like you know the Ophaga and um, some of the well, actually several species. I shouldn't just single out Ophaga, but the Abronia genus. The species have a significant relationship with bromeliads, right? Yeah. So they, and it's funny because we had this large. Um, knowledge of okay we keep finding them in these habitats with a lot of bromeliads 
Um, they must be utilizing them to either drink from them or hang out in them, um, which they definitely do. Um, but it's funny, they actually are more found in a lot of different talansiids. Um, so you're kind of air plants. Um, I think the larger um, or sorry, smaller leaflets um, tend to break off and create this kind of little canopy that they can hide under really easily um, and nestle in because they really do like to kind of be in uh, tight kind of formulated moss clumps or talansiid clumps, but you'll also find them in bromeliads. Um, most of the way of searching for wild abronia is actually going and looking through different bromeliads and talansiids because that's kind of the best way to find them. They're not usually out on tree or tree trunks or branches. They're usually tucked in somewhere, um, but they definitely do utilize those plants as a very specific microhabitat that without them, they wouldn't be able to exist in those certain trees or whatever their territory might be. I was always curious about that because I'd seen them set up in, in captive situations and very, very heavy with the Talansia. And I was always curious in terms of why I saw that. I saw Spanish moss, um, obviously cork bark and whatnot, but what's, I mean, maintaining them in captive conditions, like what do you, what exactly are you trying to recreate? I mean, is there a certain temperature, a certain humidity? I mean, what is that wild environment like that you're trying to recreate in captivity? Yeah. So I'll kind of go through basically a standard setup, at least how I usually um, put together a cage for uh, any number of abronia species, because most of their care is pretty similar across the board. Um, as far as we know, we could find down the line that there are some different variations that certain species might benefit from. Um, some are just more sensitive to uh, heat um, and temperature variation. Some like to be well hidden and some are out pretty, uh, pretty boldly. So for the most part, um, the big things that you really want to think about with setting up an enclosure is good airflow and fairly high humidity. So I typically use the Zoomed Reptibreeze cages. Um, usually I use 16, 16, 30s for a single adult. Um, I try to keep all my adults separate most of the year, except for the breeding season. You can keep them together throughout the year, but usually it's a lot less stressful, especially on the females, to be able to separate them. Um, but we can touch a little bit more into that later. Um, but usually you want to stay away from glass enclosures. I know people who have had success with them before, so I won't say that you absolutely can't. But it's usually much better to do a screen enclosure or at least an enclosure with a couple screen sides as well as a top. Just to kind of allow for that airflow as they are pretty prone to upper respiratory infections from such high humidity. The other thing is you want to maintain a pretty well humid um, and a fairly good level of hydration. I think sometimes we use humidity and hydration kind of too interchangeably, um, where you want good humidity, but you also want good moisture droplets because oftentimes Abronia will not visibly be seen drinking from a water dish. I don't actually even use water dishes in my 
closures because I've never seen one drink from it. Um, that's not to say they wouldn't. Um, and I do know people who have seen, uh, you know, an abronia opportunistically drinking from a little cup of water or a bromeliad. Um, but usually you want to have a good misting schedule that's going to allow them to drink up water droplets, fresh water droplets from plant leaves, cork background, or even just off their own scales. The other part is abronia are somewhat shy. Um, some species are pretty bold, um, especially what I've found my abronia vasconcelosi and arita tend to be pretty bold where comparative to my abronia graminia, they tend to be extremely shy. Now, some people have completely different experience, so it could just be my individuals, but typically you want to give them areas where they can kind of duck down into plants or moss um, or even cork tubes um, just to kind of be able to get away from what they may visualize as predators or just even feel kind of safe and secure. Um, so I like to fill all my cages with lots of talansiids and bromeliads. Bromeliads are kind of um, a topic of some people agree with them, some people don't. Some people will say, don't use bromeliads because they collect water and feces and dead crickets and whatnot, and they become these kind of cesspools of filthy water. And you don't want to expose that to your animals. I, however, have used bromeliads in my enclosures, and to my knowledge, I've not had a problem. But I also go the extra step and make sure to flush my bromeliads pretty regularly, as well as they get misted every day. So I'm trying to kind of flush out the uh, dirty water that might be in there, just as a rainstorm would in the natural environment. Um, and then usually just keeping them at a cooler range. So for reptiles, we often think you want more heat. These guys you want to keep pretty much around like room temp um, or even a little bit cooler. So I try to shoot between roughly about 62 and I'll say 75 for ambient. I do provide a basking spot for females that may be gravid that can get up into the 80s, 85, um, just as a source that they can seek for kind of cooking those babies as they are live bearing species. Um, there is no eggs that they deposit. So one day you'll just have a nice little litter of anywhere from five to probably 15 babies. There have been litters higher than that and litters smaller than that as well. So um, but pretty, pretty basic care as long as you can keep that temperature down and that humidity up. Um, and they're not really, some people handle them a lot. I try to keep mine pretty hands off as they don't seem to benefit any from handling except for just being able to get good visual checks on them, but they're more, uh, sit back and enjoy their aesthetics from afar. But some people have had really good success with being able to handle theirs pretty regularly too. So now what, am, well, I'm going to two part question. Um, part one, yeah. what's their diet like? And the second part is, I mean, since they're a montane species, I'm curious in terms of like what their D3 requirements are, because I know with 
old world chameleons, like the montane species, like Jackson's chameleons, you you don't want to overdo it with you know the the calcium in D three, and you don't necessarily want the the UV light to be as intense. I mean, are there some similarities in that regard too, in terms of supplementation with um, you know uh, supplementing their food and supplemental lighting? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, so as far as UV, um, just based on kind of cloud forest um, conditions in Mexico and Guatemala, they actually are quite often found in pretty high levels of UV. Um, so I've actually been kind of playing around with increasing the amount of UV that I use. Um, for most of my adults and babies, I use the Arcadia T5 6% bulbs, um, but I've actually been experimenting with some of the 12%, um, especially with certain species that have been known to have a fair bit of variation in their color from kind of captivity to how wild specimens look. So Graminia is a perfect example of that. We often see um, animals that don't have the best nutrition um, tend to be this more like bluish teal color. Um, some people seem to think it's a morph. Um, in all of my uh, findings, I have not been able to find anything that's shown a wild, true wild abronia to be blue. Um, so I think it's actually a lack of certain carotenoids and then actual um, exposure to high amounts of UV. So I've actually started putting the 12% uh, UV on my graminia as well as dusting with two different um, high level carotenoids as well as certain calcium. Um, Abronia do tend to be able to create chalk sacks um, with additional calcium. And as long as they're given um, at least low to moderate levels of UVB, they seem to be able to synthesize that and turn it into the D3. Um, I haven't heard about anybody having issues of over supplementing. Um, so I don't think that's a worry. But again, we could find out in a couple of years from now that that is something that we want to really make sure we're not overdoing as well as we are giving them the appropriate amount. Um, so I actually use a different mixture of a couple supplements um, for dusting all my crickets, which you asked kind of what their diet is. They're usually um, considered primarily insectivorous, insectivores. Um, however, I've had a couple um, colleagues tell me that they witnessed them actually eating plants, um, especially even pothos, which was kind of unique. Um, cause as far as we know, they don't tend to utilize any of those, uh, natural greens that they would eat in a diet, but maybe opportunistically, whether it's for water source or if they just maybe had some form of bug or pollen or something on them, they have been known to eat some plants. So usually, though, um, they're pretty good about eating a variety of different uh, insects from crickets to black soldier fly larvae. To, um, I've even heard of butterflies being used for them. They tend to really like winged stuff, um, but that can be kind of hard to come by for a common source. And then a lot of the different like worm species as a supplement. So your hornworms, waxworms, mealworms, superworms, those are all good, um, 
additional supplements, but usually the base is crickets or roaches. Interesting, interesting. Um, what I'm trying to think uh, best way to go about this? I mean, what's the history of abronia species in the hobby? I mean, did they come in kind of piecemeal, like species by species, or did the genus just sort of kind of come in all at once? Yeah, so that's kind of a hot topic too because um, a lot of abronia actually have come into the U.S. and most other countries through illegal origin. Um, so they are a bit of a tricky species and one that is probably, I think, um, been hurt uh, by the illegal trafficking uh, kind of sector of it, not only by just illegally bringing in these animals, but the fact that illegal animals were brought in and they kind of did make a foothold in um, private sector because now we're seeing not a lot of zoos working with these species, mainly because everything within the country probably has stemmed from illegal origins. Um, There was five species that were legally imported um, at one time. Um, I want to say it was Graminia, Mixteca, I want to say uh, Lithrochila or Lithrochila, however you want to say it. And then the other two were ones that weren't as common, um, and they're escaping me right now. But um, the kind of popularity of them grew rather quickly. Most of these species have been in country for anywhere from 15 to 20 years, maybe even earlier than that. But there are records back into the early 90s and um, even late 80s, from what I've heard of Bronia coming into the U.S. Now, with that, um, there still is a lot of uh, illegal origin collection. So Guatemala and Mexico are pretty stringent on not exporting animals out of country because they are almost all declining. There's very few species that their populations are considered stable. So there's not a lot of permits going out. Unfortunately, these are pretty poverty-stricken countries. And if there's people out there willing to collect the animals, there's someone out there willing to get them into the country for the pet trade. So that's one of the things we're really against. Um, Obviously, a lot of the animals that did come in and that are in Um, our collections and stuff probably came from illegally obtained animals um, years and years ago and generations back. So we're really trying to say, okay, instead of saying, hey, we messed up the first time, let's at least learn from those mistakes and really just focus on the stuff that is already here. And then potentially down the line, if there's the opportunity And if it makes sense to see about doing an actual legal um, shipment to get animals into zoos or private hands or whoever's going to be capable to give these species another chance. So kind of got off topic, but really we've seen it's fine. Yeah, yeah. we um, we've kind of seen 
an increase in the past, I would say maybe five years for Bronia. Um, there's been a lot more people really starting to get into especially Graminia and Abronia taniata um, and Abronia lythrochyla. Those seem to be the common three that are really um, emerging in the uh, herpticulture um, and the community because we're starting to figure out how to reproduce them pretty successfully. That's not to say that there aren't illegal animals still coming in because when there's a potential um, dollar to be made, people will do the easiest route. So we were kind of talking about a little bit how to get into the Abronia um, responsibly, and it's kind of knowing where to look, who might not be producing the actual true captive bred animals and I'm sure we can talk more about that uh, at a later time. We but. could go on and on and on about that. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me, I, I, you know, it's it's always it's like the the dark secret that no one wants to admit. But yeah, people will rather pay twenty five bucks for a fresh import that will probably fail to thrive in a short period before they're willing to cough up, you know, some serious coin for something that was bred responsibly. Now, do you guys do you breed? At the Alliance, because I've seen some of the pictures, you know, on your Instagram and whatnot, you guys have got kind of quite the room going there. Do, do you guys actively breed or you just sort of keep them? Yeah, so we actively are um, breeding. Um, uh, we've got a couple different uh, partners, um, and that's one of the big reasons why we wanted to make this kind of the Abronia Alliance and not just some other off-name uh, reptile shops or whatever we really wanted this to be a community effort um all of the partners currently that are what make up a brony alliance we're not looking to make any profit off these animals we're not looking to exploit them for any level of social or monetary game we really just want to see these species have a fighting chance and unfortunately the wild does not look um, like it's going to give them that fighting chance. So we're really just trying to buy them some extra time by seeing if we can get the animals, like you said, that came in from, you know, that kind of black market area um, years and years and years ago that now their offspring are here. Let's see if we can get that into the right hands capable hands to be able to hopefully give them a future at least in captivity and then we can also hopefully transfer that over into giving them a better shot in the wild as well um so yeah it's it's a really really tough thing it's sort of like uh, there there is a book out there and for the life of me i can't remember the author's name and it 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 was at the time and possibly still is a, a kind of a, a uh, um, controversial book, but I believe it's called The Living Ark or something something like yeah. that. Yeah, and the, the author's premise is that, well, we're going to probably lose a lot of these species. It's, it's going to be a ripple effect. We've done the damage, and that damage is going to continue to go outward, and despite our best efforts, it's going to wipe out species due to events that had already been set in motion years ago. So the author's rationale is, well, 
we have these species in captivity, this is going to be their last stand, so to speak, in the hands of hopefully capable people. And then ultimately, once the situation can improve, they may be reintroduced out into the wild or somehow in some way preserved. Now, I've heard scientists say that they would rather a species go completely extinct rather than exist solely in captivity. I personally don't agree with that for a number of reasons, but it seemed, to me it just seems that at this point in a species history, why completely forfeit it when there is some possible means of at least making an investment into its future? And even if that investment is just keeping as many of them captive as you can, I mean, look at the axolotl. The axolotl is, is, for all intents and purposes, extinct in the wild, yet they're everywhere in captivity. They're a model organism in labs, and that's a prime example. So I, exactly. I personally don't quite, I, mean, I understand people's perspective and I understand people's ethics and their, and their scientific reasoning behind it. But, you know, for me, it just seems like at this point in the game, why just let it go? When you have organizations Absolutely. like yours that are making this concerted effort to not make a profit off of it, but to establish, I'm assuming you're going to establish bloodlines. I'm sure you guys probably keep a stud book. You probably keep records of which which breedings are taking place and whatnot. I mean, there's a big difference between doing that and then just keeping a bunch of them in a private collection and not doing them and, and not doing anything with them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you're exactly right. And, you know, the people that uh, sit there and will say, you know, we would rather see species go extinct than be maintained just to solely exist in captivity. Like, yeah, absolutely. If the animals are only going to exist in captivity, should they go extinct? The environmental conservationist side of me wants to say yes. However, we have no idea what the future holds. And to say, let's not give this a shot and write this off, I think is somewhat foolish because um, one of uh, fellow conservationists that works mostly with hellbenders, he said it perfect. We do all these uh, head starts for hellbenders. And he said, we're not saving the species. At very best, we're buying them more time in hopes that the environment can rebound enough where they can exist back out in the wild naturally. And I think that was like such a testament to, yeah, it doesn't have to be about keeping these animals in enclosures or in confined areas for their entire lives. But if it's the means to a better future, that means being able to exist freely in their native environment or a environment that may have been rehabilitated to allow them to exist, I say we absolutely should go for it. And it's our responsibility as the species that most always is the ones causing these species to go extinct in the first place. I agree. I mean, I think that it, it you know, at, at this point, I mean, maybe attitudes will change, but I mean, our technology has increased exponentially. I mean, even in the past five years, look at what technology has been able to accomplish. Who knows what we're going to be able to have at our fingertips in 50 years? I mean, our understanding of the natural world has increased so dramatically in the past century, so much more so in the past decade, that 
to me, I agree with you. It seems folly to just completely abandon a species to extinction when you just by keeping a small amount of it, even if it's just, you know, just bare genetic material, who knows what we'll have to work with in the future. I was reading, uh, I shouldn't say I was reading, there, there's, there's, there's quite a few podcasts that I follow, and most of them aren't actually even animal related, but uh, there was another podcast I was listening to, and they had, um, a, uh, I believe it was a gentleman on who was talking about the, uh, I think it's the Chavalsky's horse in Mongolia, and what they were able to do was they were able to extract you know, viable DNA from skins that had been preserved or in private collections or whatever and they were essentially able to or either in the process of being able to supplement the the genetic population now with with new dna yeah. which which is which is pretty amazing i mean these are these are from horses that were in collections like almost like a hundred years ago so i mean if we can do that with a mammal who's to say that we can't potentially do that with an amphibian with the reptile with an insect with you know, with anything really. Definitely. And I mean, I think it's, there's definitely a, a fine line. I'm not going to be as cool as it would be. I'm not trying to bring Jurassic Park back. Oh, we absolutely not. I, I totally agree with you. <laughs> but at the same time, there are so many species that we have had a specific hand in decimating their future to exist. And why not? If we have the resources, if we have the ability to give it a shot, I think we should. And there's definitely species that are not going to bounce back from uh, captive management. There's just sometimes you can try and try and put as many resources into a program as you want, but sometimes it just doesn't work. However, we have to be, I think honest with ourselves as a community and say, you know, do we think this species or group of species can thrive with some level of effort and some level of resources, at least to give them a fighting chance? And I think that's exactly what we're trying to do with the Bronia. Um, they obviously are being uh, threatened by a lot of different issues. The number one issue being deforestation and habitat fragmentation. But that's not to say that we could learn a better way to have people in Mexico and Guatemala utilize the land better. And if they can then, we kind of talked about it a little bit with Costa Rica, utilize the value of that land towards ecotourism that's now both beneficial to the surrounding uh, human communities but also beneficial to the wild and natural communities, that's a win-win. And I don't think we're far off from that. Costa Rica has done a fantastic job with that. There's no reason that a similar thing could not be done in Mexico and Guatemala in the future. Yeah, the human component is one of those things that people, I mean, especially in, I mean, here in the United States, I mean, we are, whether we admit it or not, we are biased to, against other parts of the world. We are. I'll, I'll openly admit that. And it's very, very easy to say, you know, that, and I'm not going to single out any country here, but let's just say any, any, any country that um, 
you know, has significant threats to its natural environments. But it's very easy for people to say, well, these local people shouldn't be exploiting this. And it's like, well, they're not doing this to be malicious. They're doing it because they have basic human needs that are not able to be met. So you cannot necessarily fault someone who is living below the poverty line from collecting a species that they know is going to help support their family. What you can do, however, is say, all right, well, instead of collecting these species in the wild, turning them over to someone to make a tiny profit when this person is is going to capitalize over it big time, promote, promote, like you said, ecotourism. Involve local people in conservation rather than in exploitation, so to speak. And I think that that's really going to be the direction that we're going to want to go in. Um, Mexico, for example, um, I don't recall how recent this is, but I think this happened within the past couple of years. In the tarantula community, um, you know, there's always questionable issues with with different species being imported from different locations, etc., whatnot. But uh, I believe Mexico actually set aside an area where tarantulas can be collected from and exported legally. So they're essentially managed on a captive level so that they can be exported to the United States legally and supply the hobby rather than having local people go into those areas and remove native species to be exported under less than ideal circumstances, we'll say. So it's, it's nice to see that those efforts are out there. And it's just those are the efforts that need to be encouraged rather than this this archaic notion that, well, if we can't save everything the way that we think it should be, it's it's a moot point and it's a lost cause. It's like, well, no, there's going to have to be some wiggle room here. We're going to have to really work with local populations in areas that are in need to address those concerns in a way that's going to be sustainable for them. They'll be able to, you know, they'll be able to make livings. They'll be able to live, you know, um, live as best they can, but at the same time, not rely on um, the not I'm trying to think of the, the most tactful way to put this, but um, not exploiting a species that is potentially on the brink of extinction, you know? So make money by preserving that species, not by taking it. Exactly. And that's and my, I mean, and that's, that's my rant. So <laughs> no, yeah, I, I think you and I are very much on the same page. And I, I think a, a good majority of the community is starting to understand this better of, you know, I'll, I'll be the first one to admit a Brony Alliance doesn't have all the answers for how to save a Bronia in the wild or even necessarily how to buy them a future where they might exist in Guatemala and Mexico. Most of us are that are partners in this are not from Mexico or Guatemala. We don't know the political or uh, local community um kind of opinions around these species. So one of the big goals for us is not necessarily to go in and say, hey, you guys need to save these species. They're of huge value to the environment and huge value to us because ultimately we're the white guy coming in and telling the local people how to manage their country. That will never go over well. Um, So we've been trying to network with a lot of different people that are working in academia, zoological, uh, private sector, and even just local people down there that know Abronia or even have some experience with that to start to try and understand where does the problem lie and how can we begin to not get us to fix the problem, 
but how can we help to see if there's a solution that the country as a whole and the local people can start to at least address the problem. I, I, I agree. That's what I think is awesome. Yeah, I agree. I think that the human element in all this is, is is the most important, and that's ultimately what sort of gets lost in the mix. I mean, even on let's just take the um, a country outside of the. I mean, I know I have listeners in other parts of the world, and I know that this this often comes off as kind of biased towards the United States and and, and especially New York, but that's that's where I live. But I mean. If I were to go out into my community, just for example, in my neighborhood, I'm going to have a hard time convincing people that local species are in need. So it's it's a very, very difficult challenge, especially when if you're going to come into someone else's neighborhood and try to tell them, well, listen, this is what you have to do. I mean, if I mean, I'm from New York. If you come into my neighborhood and tell me what to do, I'm going to tell you to get the hell out of here. So yeah. it's, it's just, <laughs> but, but it's, it's just the way, it, it's just the way it goes. So it's it, it's such a touchy issue because you want to get everyone on board to this you know undertaking which is really huge i mean it's going to be a global commitment and, and it's hard you know i mean listen yeah. if i went to my, my next door neighbors and i said hey listen i want to show you this really really endangered species and there's very few of them left and you know what we want you to look out for them and i show them this little tiny brown frog they're going to say what the hell is that you yeah. know what I mean? So it's, it is, it is it's a very, very hard sell, especially when people have, you know, they're dependent upon it for the livelihood, you know, and that's the, that's the real difficult part is because you don't want to take someone's livelihood away, but at the same time, you, you don't want to forfeit, uh, you know, you don't want to forfeit a species just because, you know, you don't, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I I'm getting all, I'm, yeah, my, I'm, I'm, I'm ranting again. <laughs> no, it's, I think it's a, a very on topic rant that needs to be had because it, I, I think so often, um, just people in general, I won't even, uh, put it down to like the animal or herb communities, but I think people in general think conservation is take an animal out of the wild, put it in a cage, breed it, put it back in the wild. And if only it was that easy, yeah, I yeah. would I would love it to be that easy of a process. But that's not the reality of the situation. And like you said, if we can't, and oftentimes we are very good at saying, hey, let's protect all these other exotic species, but then not even protecting our own species in our backyards that need just as much help, which is why I personally am committed to Abronia, but I also am involved in a lot of local and native species conservation around where I'm from. So I'm not being that person to go to another environment and say, Hey, I've picked and choose which conservation um, programs or initiatives are important to me based on, well, it's my decision. I care about this. So therefore everyone should care about it because that's just such a wrong way to go about it. But what we've done is we've actually been really fortunate in um, one of our partners, Andreas, he is from Guatemala and he is a phenomenal photographer. Um, he's also a wonderful tour guide, the nicest guy in the world. I have had yet to have the chance to meet him face to face. Thanks to COVID, we were going to plan a trip down to Mexico and Guatemala to, to visit and start kind of um, breaking down some of those barriers 
other partners have been down to the environment um, and it'll happen in the near future. But we have local people that want to help their communities see the importance that they see. Photography, ecotourism, just even letting a species exist for its own intrinsic value. Um, we've actually, since starting kind of the social media stuff around Brony Alliance, had a couple places down in Mexico and Guatemala reach out to us and say, hey, we love what you're doing. We actually have a Bronia on the property and we want to help preserve them because we see how much other people love them. And we would love to help be a part of making a commitment to protecting the habitat for them to continue to thrive, just as bringing up the importance for our visitors and our public. So it's really neat to see this community starting to form into being um, at least understanding of what maybe the next steps are to be in giving them a shot um, at being turned around. So it's it's pretty exciting and pretty neat, but it's also a huge task we have in front of us. And that's why this aspect of Abronia Alliance, we try to not specifically uh, focus too much on the individuals that are making things happen with Abronia Alliance, but our organization as a whole, because it isn't specific to any one of us individuals all the focus should just be on the species themselves. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned photography. And with, uh, I mean, uh, I call it anti-social media, but with, with the <laughs> advent of social media, you can share an image with the entire world, basically for free within a few seconds. And mm -hmm. photography is great for a number of reasons. I mean, especially, I mean, there's a lot of crap photographers, but there's also some really, really good photographers, especially nature photographers. Yeah. When I was young, this is before digital cameras. Now, you had to use film. Then you went to this little tiny building called a photomat. You, you, you old enough to remember those? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was a little tiny building. Barely, little, there was like but, one person in there. But, but you, 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 the, the joke is like, all right, well, you took a bunch of pictures and it took you two weeks to get them developed and realize that they came out like horrible. So yeah, it's the, always the like white or like there's a thumb in the way or yeah. something. Yeah. But photography is a great media for conservation because I've seen some really, really exceptional photographers and their work with endangered or really any species. It's so eye catching that that image just sort of stays with you and it's easier to get someone on board supporting a, a certain species with good photography, because this is not something that was, I mean, you had great nature photographers, I'm not going to deny that, but now being able to share your photography with the rest of the world almost instantaneously makes that a great media that can be used for good instead of being used for the usual stupid purposes that it, that it is anyway. So, um, I mean, even me, like I, I had seen, I'd seen a Bronia maybe like twice. I'd seen one at a reptile show back a thousand years ago when we used to have them before the whole COVID thing started. But, um, <laughs> and I'd yeah. seen one at a, at a local store and I didn't really pay it much mind cause I'm not really, I'm not really a lizard person, but 
I saw a few pictures of them and some different species and just the pictures alone were enough to really get me to have, you know, an interest in them and to want to find out more just because of those really, really good photographs. Yeah, it's it's crazy how quickly one photo can take you down the rabbit hole because that's actually how I got my start with Abronia. Um, we had had them at the zoo that I work at years and years ago, and I kind of vaguely remember us having them, which is so funny because I must have either just not taken the time to like really appreciate them or there just wasn't that opportunity that really like fascinated me. And it was actually a photo that a semi-local pet store uh, had put on their Facebook or something. And my dad texted it to me. He was like, look at these. I had just kind of started getting back into keeping animals at home and was kind of figuring out what species I wanted to keep. I kind of dabbled in. Um, my other love is pygmy chameleons. I think they're the most fascinating, boring species ever. They're these <laughs> tiny little brown things that you have to search 20 minutes in the enclosure just to find is sitting right in front of your face. And they don't move. They don't like to be handled, but I love them. They're so cool. Anyway, so I started getting into those and kind of got into like some day geckos and just figured those weren't really my thing. I appreciate them, but didn't want to keep them. Kind of dabbled with Europlatus again. Wasn't crazy about the nocturnal things. And then when he had sent me that picture, I was like, wow, yeah, these things are really cool. And I've always kind of known of them. But I, man, I just like that picture just fascinated me. And I just started like researching like crazy. And before I knew it, I was going out to the pet store to see him. And then I was researching more and I was looking up every little bit of information I could find on a Bronia, which was not much. There were a few um, care sheets or articles out there, but it was actually... Uh, Forrest Fanning, who was the other co-founder of Abronia Alliance, uh, that had done a podcast, and it was on Corallis. It was like a two-and-a-half-hour podcast, but it also said Abronia. And I was like, okay, I got to listen to this. And I listened to two hours and 15 minutes of Corallis talk before a three-minute section about Abronia. But I listened to that probably... 10 times over just studying every word and every little bit of information out of that. And I was hooked. It was just, it was a slippery slope. And that's when I started reading all the scientific papers and it just became a, I like to call it a passion, but it was probably more of an obsession. And I just figured, you know, these things are so amazing and they're probably going to go extinct in my lifetime. How can I change that? And so between Forrest and I, we kind of created this idea of how to potentially give them a shot at maybe having a future. Gotcha. No, it's, it's definitely makes, you know, it makes a lot of sense. You get hooked into something and you go down that rabbit hole, like you said. Um, yeah. I mean, we're just, we're kind of winding down towards the end, but there's just a couple of things I wanted to talk about before we kind of broke up. But, um, I mean, just on a personal level, like, what do you have a favorite species? And and if so, which which one is it? Like, what's your go-to species? 
Ooh, that's hard to say. So I'll give you a two-part answer because, you know, I can't just answer a question normally. <laughs> but I would say my favorite species that I am currently working with um, would have to be a Bronia vasconcelosi or maybe a Bronia arita. They're pretty similar. There's like slight color variation and like one to two scale difference. So I kind of lump them together, but they're pretty bold. Um, they're kind of like a more badass graminia in my personal opinion. They've got these like neon green colors and these big sub- subocular spikes um, or horns that just make them look incredible. And they're just, I don't know, there's something about them that I just absolutely fell in love with. So I've been working to really focus efforts on reproducing those. And I actually have, I want to say eight or nine uh, offspring from last year that watching them grow up in the different color patterns that they've been putting out, they are just every day, like they amaze me. Just uh, They just keep getting more and more vibrant. So they're really cool. As far as the species that I have not worked with um, and that really isn't in captivity would be Abronia frosty. They are basically this extremely contrasting kind of black and yellow or black and kind of silver color. No subocular horns, but they were actually just rediscovered back in 2014. So there's a lot of really cool history behind them and they just they look very regal. Awesome. And, you know, last question, you know, what advice would you give to someone who wants to become involved with the genius, like someone who wants to keep them successfully in captivity and maybe even end up breeding them? What, what advice would you give to them? Yeah. So the biggest thing is just do your research. And that goes for both husbandry, natural history, and even just sourcing animals. That is one of the biggest things that I think I probably don't stress enough, but I really want to is take your time to look into individuals, make sure that they are not just bringing in animals illegally from the wild and offsetting them as captive bred or whatever. Do your research, find good people that are actually producing the animals because oftentimes they will help you to be successful with keeping these animals and really just take your time. There's no rush. Start small, start with an easy, more common species, make sure that works before you jump into some of the more advanced and kind of rarer species, because really what's here is pretty much what's here. Awesome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Nick Gordon, Nick, you've been a great guest. Um, is there, is there a website or anything you want to give out? I know I know um, you're on Instagram, but is there a website you guys have or a Facebook or something? Yeah, so we don't have a website yet. We're working on it. Um, but the two places you can get a lot of information um, about what we're doing is on our Instagram page. Um, is just at Abronia Alliance. And then also our Facebook group, at Abronia Alliance or Abronia Alliance as well. Um, but we do put out, um, content and we actually just did a fundraiser 
about a month and a half ago, um, which we were able to raise about $3,000 for a reserve in Guatemala that has Abronia um, within their range um, and on their property. So we do try and put everything back into the wild just as much as we put into captivity. So um, definitely give us a follow. We're going to be doing lots more fundraisers, going on trips down there. So if you want to learn more about Abronia, both in the wild and in captivity, definitely look for big things from Abronia Alliance. And thanks again for having us on. No, There's, uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, it's been a great time. All right. Awesome. All right. I want to thank again. I want to thank my guest, Nick Gordon from the Abronia Alliance. Definitely check out their Instagram page. And, you know, they've got some really great photographs on there. It's definitely worth a look. So until next time. Thank you all. Take care of each other.